Welcome to the Midnight Library of Baseball. I'm Ben Orlando, and tonight I welcome another guest to the library. Jason Turbo has written many articles for the New York Times, USA Today, The Atlantic, and others. He's also written many books, including Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, Reggie, Raleigh, Catfish, and Charlie Finley's Swinging A's, as well as They Bled Blue, the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. He also wrote, with Michael Duca, The Baseball Codes, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, which I absolutely loved and frequently referenced in my recent episode on the code. I thought it would be fun to talk to Jason and do a deeper dive into the code. So I invited him to the library, and he accepted. Also, during the talk, Jason and I are both recovering from colds, so if you hear a cough uh, or our voices sound a little off, that's probably why. Here's our talk. Hello, Ben. Jason, hi. I'm sorry you're feeling under the weather. <laughs> you as well. Uh, yeah, no, I feel fine. I've had this thing for like three weeks now. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to speak with me. Of course. Yeah, mostly I just was uh, interested in a follow-up after reading your book and doing this podcast and just things that, you know, there's so much <laughs> in there. And then I had some questions and thoughts afterwards. Like normally for a, a story I think of, you know, I, I find books and I find lots of different articles. And, and for this, you know, there's there's stuff here and there, but... To the depth that was in your book or even the topics discussed there's not a lot and i mean do you feel like this has been suppressed um kept out of the media um the code and the different aspects of I, the code i don't think it's been suppressed i mm -hmm. think people are actually really interested in talking about it i mean we, we hear the phrase inside baseball used for you know, all manner of in, insider information across all walks of life. This is legitimately, actually, literally inside baseball. Right. And there's, you know, there's only so much, so much space for it because there's a lot to unpack. I think it's difficult to start talking about one part of the code without really delving into it mm -hmm. with a fair degree of detail, uh, which, which might be why, you know, mainstream, um, you know, day-to-day -day baseball writers, gloss over some of it but you know when when there's when there's you know, a so-called beanball war that's that's that right there on the, the front of every sports page mm -hmm. um you know and, and every, everybody who's recounting that game um it is talked about it's just not necessarily framed in in the way that you and i are framing it in this conversation mm -hmm. in terms of where this comes from i know again you you talked about this in the book but like the why it was necessary, what, what, what you see from your research and talking to all these people, what would have happened in the early days if the code hadn't existed? Well, I, I think the code exists because it needed to exist. It was never a construct of Major League Baseball as an organization. It, you know, it emerged from the ranks of the players, and it has only ever lived amid the ranks of the players. Um, and and one of the beautiful aspects to me about these unwritten rules of the sport is that they are now and have always been about respect. Mm -hmm. The shape of that respect has taken different forms, but that's always been the heart of them. So back in the early days, 
um, if a player or a team felt disrespected in a given way, there were there were methods for them to respond on the field because that was the only way for them to respond short of, you know, showing up at the clubhouse door after the game with a bat in hand. Similarly, if, you know, a player was drilled by a baseball, there were on-field ways to respond to that. And it's all grown out of that. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's the way players police themselves and each other. And I think one important aspect is that it gives players and teams a release valve. So if something happens that riles them, there is a way for them to deal with it and then move beyond it, which is exactly how it's always worked throughout the history of the game. You know, I drill you, you drill me, it's over. You keep drilling me, then we're going to have an issue and then we'll move beyond it after we resolve that issue. Mm-hmm. Well, considering, like you're saying, the, the players police themselves, what is the consequence of the changing rules and umpires now stepping in and really forbidding pitchers to carry out that retribution? Yeah, I mean, we're having this conversation during an interesting time in the evolution of the code. I mean, I wrote this book. It, it was published in 2010. Um, and it was it pretty accurately described the state of the unwritten rules from pretty much the beginning until that point when the book came out. In the you know decade plus since, there's been an immense evolution in the way things are handled on the field. Um, partly, as you suggest, from the umpires on down, and partly amid the players themselves. Um, you know, I, I look at a turning point, a couple turning points for me. Um, one was Jose Bautista's bat flip in 2017. I don't know if you remember this. You know, punctuating. You know, the, the, the biggest Blue Jays win of the, the postseason to that point, he flipped his bat high and far. And at that point, I, you know, I'd been documenting the unwritten rules for, for a decade by that point, nearly, um, you know, coming down, you know, against unnecessary, ostentatious displays on the field, um, not strongly, but, but taking note of them, that bat flip was a thing of wonder. Right. That was pure joy on a field. There, there could have been nothing better in that moment than, than that guy flipping that bat the way he did. And I think everyone saw it and everyone understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was the beginning of the sea change. And I think the, the crest of that wave came in 2017 during the World Baseball Classic. When the team from Puerto Rico played their way to the championship with such unmitigated joy and verve um, in the United States and in, in Major League Baseball stadiums, wearing the uniform of their home country, playing the way they play in their home country, the way you know, many Latin American players play in their home countries. Um, it, it was a wonder to watch. They were the, the, the most fun team to watch in that tournament by far. And they lost to the United States in the, in the championship. But the fact that they were playing that style of baseball in the United States, in big league stadiums, was not lost on you know, the, the general proletariat. And they showed up a couple weeks later for the regular season, playing in the same stadiums, wearing different uniforms, and everyone dialed it back to the expectations, mm. the way it had always been. Um, and yet the fuse had been lit. And ever since that, to my mind, ever since that World Baseball Classic, these displays of showmanship have been getting bigger and bolder and you know, honestly better and commensurately 
the pitchers who had formerly been really irked by these bat flips and, you know, hand claps and little dances in the batter's box began to understand, actually, you know, it's not so disrespectful. It's, mm. it's good for the game. And mm. so, you know, you know, it, it's all, it's all cat and mouse give and take, right? So if the pitchers aren't responding and the players are doing it, it becomes the new norm. Right. And, and that's what we're seeing these days. So the, the difference between I'm just excited and I'm rubbing it in your face. And it's clear now that the emotions are able to come out a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it, to the point where in 2018, the next year, I mean, Major League Baseball developed an entire advertising campaign around it. Let the kids play. Right. Mm -hmm. They unveiled it in October, just in time for the playoffs. Like, let's let's take advantage of this new excitement that the sport honestly needed um, pretty desperately at the time. Um, and, you know, there there were and still occasionally are hiccups, you know, letting letting the kids play might might you know, make a, a, a given red ass pitcher angry. And he might respond in the way that red ass pitchers have always responded. And then you got to deal with that. But by and large, it's, you know, all these things have been smoothed over. And so this this intricate tapestry of, of, of give and take in the unwritten rules that has existed on the field forever is now, you know, it's all kind of just one smooth surface where, where, where people are more free to display their emotions than ever. And what you said there, let the kids play, I mean, talking about that campaign, does that also then bleed over to this constant debate of, you know, running up the score and you should be able to play as hard as you can until the last inning. That's actually a separate issue um, because there, there is ongoing perceptions about respect therein. Um, and that, to me, this is one of the, the most interesting aspects of the code. Um, nobody disagrees that you shouldn't run up the score. Everyone says, don't run up the score, big lead late in the game, shut it down. And in what that means is you don't stop trying to hit. Um, you just stop trying to play aggressively. Mm. Runners advance one base on a single, two bases on a double. Um, you know, Ron Washington, um, you, the legendary third base coach, put it to me in very clear terms back when he was the third base first coach for the A's. He said, you know, if there's going to be no play at the plate, I'll send the guy. If it's any threat of, you know, the guy having to slide, I'll hold him. That's, mm. that's my litmus. And then that, that, summed it up pretty well for me the the catch is the definition of big lead and late in the game that's where the disagreements come in how how big a lead is safe how late in the game is too late and and all those factors depend on the health of the bullpen you're facing the quality of the team you're facing the quality of your own team the health of your own team um this is constantly being weighed when when managers and players make these decisions and it leads to some really interesting conversations um what happens when somebody does play too aggressively that is taken as a sign of disrespect. You know, you're rubbing our noses in the fact that you're kicking our asses. Mm -hmm. And I think baseball is unique in the aspect that they play 162 games and it, it's not a matter of if, but when I I'm kicking your ass today, you're kicking my ass tomorrow. I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So I'm going to treat you with the, the commensurate respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found it interesting. Uh, who was it? Phil Gardner, I think it was. Um, Gardner, sure. One of my favorites. Um, and I'm not sure if it was Gardner or, or some other manager who, um, I think it was a different manager who has the strategy or tactic to 
um, wear out the other team's bullpen, even if you have a big lead, because it's not just the game, it's the series, you know, it's a three game series. And so we're playing the long game here, but that could be a sign Absolutely. of disrespect. Absolutely. So that blew my mind when that happened. It was not Garner. Garner has been out of baseball for quite a while. Um, I mean, he, he had a long and successful managerial career. And you're correct. He, he, his mantra was, I'm going to play until I'm comfortable. And it's your job to stop. me, And it's not your job to decide when I'm comfortable. Um, but what you're referring to happened a couple years ago, April 2022, Giants manager Gabe Kapler came out. Um, and for the first time that I've ever been aware of said, we're going to keep knocking at the bullpen, even with a big lead, even late. It was in, a, in an early series game against the Padres, you know, interdivision rival. And he said, we're not playing to win this game. We're playing to win this series. And this is the first game of the series. And if we can tire out your bullpen today, that gives us an advantage tomorrow. And it gives us an advantage the next day. And we're in your division. So it means when you go on to play your next team after us, you're at a disadvantage then. Yeah. And there's, there's no, no flaw in that argument. Like that was a perfect argument. It's not about respect. It's about strict strategy. And I gave him a lot of credit for, for talking about it that way. So since you've written the book, have any, have any other issues come to light that have been interesting to you about the code and what's happening with baseball right now? I mean, those are the big ones, you know, letting the kids play celebrations becoming normalized on the field. And then, and then, Kapler coming down and 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 saying I'm I'm legislating piling on the runs have been monumental for me. Um, at the same time, you mentioned this earlier, uh, umpires have been tightening their grip on retaliation. I mean, for years, for decades, for for generations, there was kind of an, an unspoken rule that one team drills another team, the umpire is going to give the leeway for the, the aggrieved team to respond mm-hmm. you know, before, before any real hammer comes down. Um, that's been less the case, although it is still the case. I mean, one interesting aspect of the unwritten rules to, to look at over the years is the umpire's understanding of the situation, right? It's not just showing up to umpire a baseball game. It's knowing, oh yeah, three weeks ago, this thing happened. And they haven't played each other since, so it might be coming to the fore today mm-hmm. because this is this is the time to respond. And having the perspective to say that team does need to respond in order for both teams to move beyond it. Yeah. And if if I toss this picture before the response has happened, then we're just delaying things because it is going to happen. And tomorrow or in the next series or sometimes the next year. Um, so, so the umpire is having a clear handle on how to diffuse things the most effective way possible it is kind of a vital part of their job. What What is the, because I know, you know, you opened your book with the Nolan Ryan, Robin Ventura incident, which went back at least three years. Um, what is the longest uh, back and forth that you can recall between ah. teams? One of my favorite stories in this regard has to do with Bob Gibson, one of the most notorious owners of the inside corner of the plate in big league history and a uh, longtime big leaguer, Pete LeCocq. LeCocq hit a grand slam off of Bob Gibson you know, and a, a, an indignity that, you know, for many years was actually worthy of retaliatory 
um, pitches, like this is something I don't agree with, but it, it happened for generations. You know, if you own me, I'm going to drill you. Like I'm, I need to get into your head somehow. And, you know, pitching inside, moving a batter's feet, that is actually very legitimate. Um, get his mind off the active hitting. Um, Gibson was known to do that quite a bit. Um, Lecoq hit a grand slam. Gibson was pulled from the game and never pitched again. This was the very end of his career. Years and years later, in an old-timers game, Pete Lecoq is batting. Bob Gibson is on the bench. He gets up, inserts himself into the game. He goes to the mound, says, get out of here, I'm pitching, and drills Lecoq just to close the book on that matter. You, you, you can't argue on that one that it's uh, connected to baseball anymore in terms of strategy, right? That's pure. I mean, you can go back to respect, but pure ego and yep. yeah. It's just, yeah, pure id. But I mean, also, let's remember, that's what made guys like Gibson and Don Drysdale, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and pitchers of lesser skill who were, you know, equally adamant at owning the inside part of the plate. That's what part of what made them effective was mm -hmm. the fear factor and the fact that you knew you were you were you had to be on your toes if you were going to hit against these guys and especially if you're going to hit effectively against these guys. And there's that story that you have of um, the player that Nolan Ryan hit, whose career was possibly ended uh, a few That's years right. in, right? And um, you know how many players. Because, you know, clearly players get injured, but how many players like had serious injuries from this type of retribution? You know, not not many. Um, I mean, far more prevalent than drilling a guy was pitching him inside and, mm -hmm. and moving him off the plate, especially guys who crowded the plate. Nolan Ryan learned what he he described as his bow tie pitch from Satchel Page you know, early on in his career, which is throw a pitch right where they wear their bow tie, scare the bejesus out of them, and and they, I mean, you'll move their feet. You'll move back them off their plate, and you'll get them thinking about something other than the thing they actually need to think about. Mm -hmm. And he used that to great effect. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting development. I, I talked with somebody else about you know records, records that won't be broken, records that uh, will change depending on how the game's changing. And this is seems like a significant one because this is a huge factor in dominance for a pitcher and being able to brush people back and hit players. And now that the umpires are stepping in, will certain pitching records um, you know, not be broken because that's taken away? Well, pitching records won't be broken, especially the, the counting numbers, you know, career win totals and the like, because pitchers don't pitch past the sixth inning anymore. Mm -hmm. And usually the fifth, I mean, that's, that's, that's a far more um, relevant detail. But yeah, I mean, even when I was reporting this book initially in 2010, the old timers were complaining that pitchers don't utilize the inside part of the plate anymore. They're scared to hit hit batters. Um, and in retrospect, they were doing just fine at that at that tactic back then. The modern game, they really have largely forsaken pitching inside to that degree. Um, you know, hitting guys is kind of anathema to the to the to the modern sport, and umpires responding to inside pitches aggressively as part of it. And they do so because of you know, direct instruction from, from, the, from the front office, from Major League Baseball. 
you, you talked a lot about money and obviously money has a big impact of how the code changes and how players interact with each other and what's important to them. And do you think it could get to a point or is it happening that money, there's so much money that it, it it's not even relevant anymore to players and it kind of I don't know, goes back to a love for the game? Yeah, I, I think it's actually the opposite. I mean, we look at, we look just a few days ago, Anthony Rendon of the Angels is being interviewed, you know, the day he arrived at spring training, we're pretty close to it. And somehow the question came up about his his passion for the game. I mean, this guy is making tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and he was a very, very good player. And he's been injured and kind of seemingly apathetic for the last few years about his recovery. And he said, you know, number one from number one and two for me are God and family. Baseball is a distant third. And the, the reporter said, do you care? And like, do you care about baseball? Because that's really how it came off. Like, that yeah. seemed like a legitimate question. He's like, I'm here. Do I want to be here talking to you at seven in the morning? So, you know, he cares enough to cash his check and show up at the facility. But, you know, that amount of money is going to attract players who are there for the money as opposed to the sport. Mm-hmm. Um not to say that that's many players or the majority of players, but certainly more than were there when the money wasn't there. Um, I think where the money does affect things is that these guys are all members of a very exclusive club now. Um, you know, many of them share agents, many of them vacation in the same spots in the off season. They, they share the unique experience of baseball celebrity and can connect over that. So whereas for the duration of baseball history up until probably the 1990s even, um, my team was my team and your team was your team. And there are clear boundaries between those entities and never shall the two meet. These days, you know, players are fraternizing on the field before games are hanging out. They're laughing with with each other. That never happened. Mm. I mean, never like you would, you would hear from it from your teammates if you were chatting up a, a visiting player. Like he can be your best friend from childhood, but according to baseball, like you don't talk to that guy till you guys are clear of the ballpark, and like never, never going to an opposing clubhouse. None of that. Like all, all those rules have kind of been washed away. Yeah, yeah. So there's a the major change to the code right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's part of it. Like all the things that fired guys up because holy shit, you're the opposition. You can't do that to me. Is now oh yeah, you know you're just you're just a guy I know. So like, what harm is it really going to do? In um, I'm going to do an upcoming episode on um, performance enhancing drugs and what that means um, in terms of the code. I know you know you have sections and talk about cheating. Like what's what's the overlap there or the connection? it never appeared to me that major league baseball viewed performance enhancing drugs as cheap, mm. not in the same way they viewed pine tar or cork bats. Um, they looked the other way. Like it was all but tacitly approved by, you know, the major, major league baseball commissioner and his staff. Um, I mean, I remember it was a big deal when Mark McGuire kept a bottle of, of Andro in full view of the press in his locker. That's, I mean, that's how free and easy it was. And someone's like, hey, you know, isn't that steroids? And what are we doing? But that was also the era that McGuire and Sosa were re- reigniting passion in America's pastime with their home run chase. Um, 
baseball loved it. And, and, you know, Barry Bonds came along and was shattering all the records. No one was really testing. They didn't care. And they all but encouraged it. I mean, up until the last few years when they've, they've been much more rigorous about their testing. And, and because it was institutionally approved, it just wasn't viewed as cheating. Everyone did it. Um, so you might look at an opponent who's using pine tar askew. But again, pitchers on every staff use pine tar. You know, especially I mean, now, now they're checking pitchers, you know, quote unquote, checking pitchers um, repeatedly throughout a game. But but for many years, like you would let a guy get away with using sticky stuff because you had your own pitchers using sticky stuff. And if you open that can of worms, it was going to come back to bite you, too. Um, it, it's always it's always been a tricky and interesting subject. But I, I don't think performance enhancing drugs fall under that rubric. Well, when you're talking about inside baseball, it's like, what is the dynamic in the clubhouse on the field when, you know, certain players are clearly doing it, a lot of players are, and then some are not or choosing not to, which clearly leaves them at a disadvantage. Like, is there the same hostility as some pitchers maybe don't want to use substances on their fingers and they have a little bit of annoyance towards other pitchers on the team who do, but they don't really do anything? Um, I, well, I, th- I think we need to distinguish between um, PEDs and and sticky stuff. Mm-hmm. I think dur- during the the heart of the steroid era in the '90s, there were guys who were clean who refused to use it, um, and a lot of them were not making major league rosters. You know, it, we're, I, the issue to me was not the superstars; it was the marginal players and the guys fighting for the last you know, 10 spots on a roster, the people who did the PEDs obviously had the advantage and they were the ones who were really um, viewed with some animosity by the guys who were clean. That said, the guys who were clean didn't really have a voice or a place to express it because a clubhouse is an insular place. And if you come down on the wrong side of your superstar teammate who is juicing, it's not going to end well for you, which is why you didn't hear a lot of open dissent. I, I did hear quite a bit of private dissent when I was talking to players during that era, but it never went anywhere for obvious reasons. When it comes to the sticky stuff, um, most pitchers use it. Almost all pitchers use it. I mean, there's, there's a rosin bag on every mound. It's full of sticky stuff, right? There's, there's a reason that baseball wants pitchers to be able to, to get a grip on the baseball. Um, it's much easier to aim and much less likely that you will inadvertently hit somebody. Um, it's, it's when the sticky stuff became too sticky and the spin rate jumped out of control and they started playing wiffle ball with, with major league baseballs and the hitters were just baffled that, that, that baseball had to step in because it was affecting the product in the field. And yeah, okay, we'll have a series of one, nothing games with, you know, 14 strikeouts on each side. Um, And as someone who loves a good pitching performance, I did like to watch that occasionally, but but seeing hitters flail was was not much fun for anybody. Your points about what happens and and the bottom of the roster was really like I, I hadn't thought about it like that. So uh, last last question. So I'm, I've done some podcasts and stories on uh, field of dreams and the natural. Just curious for you, uh, preference one or the other. If you um, the, the I, movies 
<laughs> I'm familiar with the movies. Cool. If if asked to pick between the two, I'll pick the natural. I think Field of Dreams has has way too many holes in in it for me. Um, it it seems to be an issue of unresolved uh, an issue. It seems to be a story of unresolved daddy issues uh-huh. that is never adequately addressed because because it's leaning way too heavily on the crutch of baseball and nostalgia. Um, I, I think, I think that script could have been handled in, in many better ways. Um, but if you're asking me about baseball movies, um, Bull Durham is far and away my favorite. It, 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 it rings so true because it was written by a former minor leaguer mm. um, that it, it, it speaks to the baseball experience in ways that, that most, most baseball movies do not. Okay. Well, Jason, thank you for talking to me today, and uh, I will. I'll let you thank know you. when this is up and running. And uh, appreciate that. All right, Jason. Yeah. Well, well, thanks again. Okay. All right. Take care, Ben. Okay, you too. Bye. Right. If you like the show, please leave a review at iTunes or wherever you listen. And I've really been appreciating the comments coming in. And again, you can leave comments. Uh, through the website or by sending me an email at uh, midnightlibraryofbaseball at gmail.com. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.